0: that you're messed up. It's that someone with a different skill set is going to be more qualified to help you navigate this.
1: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program. The entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching, where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And just a quick note here, the uh, Natasha Knox episode is actually good for an ANS credit. I was going back through some correspondence with the Accreditation Committee here in Alberta, and they are accepting uh, human behavior topics as an ANS topic. So good news, you'll have not just one life, but also one ANS credit for those in Alberta for this episode. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, we're gonna be talking to Natasha Knox. Natasha is a financial planner, uh, but as you'll see here, or here as the case may be, uh, she has a very heavy focus on financial therapy and really brings a lot of financial therapy learnings into her uh, financial planning practice. Uh, This episode will be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions, uh, no accident and sickness credits in Alberta, We'll also have a financial planning credit from FP Canada and a professional development credit from IROC, as well as the normal IAS credits. The object for today's episode, no longer we're doing colors, now we're doing objects. So something pulled from the shelf behind me and actually you'll see its partner just over here. There we go. This is my granddaughter's favorite. This is a little flower, a little pink flower that gives a little color to my office. And it has this little like wire hanger stick in it so you can hang it from anywhere. So when she comes over, she'll point to it and say, Grandpa, and then I'll fetch it down and she'll go hang it somewhere or jab her brother with it or some such. The episode here, we cover quite a bit of ground. And what I really enjoyed here is Natasha brings I think some very practical items from how she interacts with her clients uh, sort of shows how that practice of financial therapy really informs her financial planning practice. And even though this is our second member of the Financial Therapy Association that we've had on recently, the other being Nate Assel, about a month and a half or so ago, quite a different interview. Uh, Nate really comes from a therapy-informed practice. And this is what I find interesting about the uh, FDA is you have therapists and Nate really is a therapist. uh, Although as you heard Natasha mentioned, he's working on some financial planning stuff as well. Whereas Natasha really comes from that financial planning background. And it's something you see that's really an interesting dynamic when you go to FDA events is this uh, overlap between the uh, sort of therapy side and the planning side. And then you also get to see the the big disconnects between the two. So something to watch for. And I really do encourage you, if you're not a member, uh, go to one of their Lunch and Learns or that kind of thing. You'll find it's really quite useful. All right, let's hear what uh, Natasha has to say. Hey, I'm joined today by Natasha Knox. Natasha is a financial planner, financial coach, I think financial therapist shows up in there too. Natasha, I'm interested to hear this. Can you give a little bit of background about yourself and your practice?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so um I guess the way to describe me is um I usually just go by my professional designation. So I'm a financial planner. And what I do is I take um sort of a coaching approach to the financial planning process. So I integrate it by design all throughout the financial planning process. And then I also layer in some therapeutic techniques. So that's where the financial therapy comes in. But usually I just refer to myself as a financial planner because most people have heard of it. So that's me.
1: So can you talk about, I know you carry CFP certification. Can you talk about the other uh, designations or uh, postgraduate or that kind of thing work that you've done to amplify that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a certified financial behavior specialist through the Financial Psychology Institute. And also prior to that, I did my graduate certificate in financial therapy through Kansas State University. So there are a few institutions sort of worldwide, they all seem to be in the US at the moment, that are offering financial therapy. Kansas State is one, Creighton is another, Golden Gate is another and uh, university of Georgia is another.
1: I didn't know what the golden gate one, but that's good to know. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you started off, I think in a MFDA shop and sort of graduated into working on your own. Do I have that right? I
0: did. Um, so I sort of, I think I had known for a little while that it was not the right fit for me. I didn't know what was wrong. You know, I, I didn't know, I didn't realize the degree to which the conflicts of interest that are inherent in the business model that I was under were affecting me. Also, I I didn't know that financial therapy existed. I didn't know that was a thing. I suffer from insomnia. So and combined with that, I have some of the most boring internet search habits In the world, my husband teases me all the time. So I was actually Googling something at like three o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep. And I came across financial therapy because what does one do when they can't sleep? I guess they Google, you know, like how do I help my clients with financial counseling? And I found something about financial therapy, which led me to find the Financial Therapy Association and the Kansas State program. So that was the only one I found at the time. and, And I found out that it was available online and it was a little while before I actually decided, yes, I'm going to do this, but that sort of got me started thinking about it.
1: Okay, perfect. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested then in your work with the Financial Therapy Association and other, like beyond the 3am Googling experience, sort of how has that progressed for you?
0: Yeah, so um, it's definitely been um, a, a gradual thing. Um, one of my profs at k-state was involved with the FDA on the board and so she encouraged all of us to get involved with the fda which i did basically immediately i was still in the middle of my program i threw my hat in the ring to start volunteering on one of the committees the social media committee i started getting to know people and then the next year um i threw my hat in the ring out to be on the board and then the following year our uh, the chair of business development left and so they asked me to chair that committee it's been amazing, really. The work that we do, like, it's just something I'm really committed to. And the group of people is, they're all super committed. It's its volunteer run, essentially. So everyone there is just doing it because of their belief in financial therapy and, you know, how it can help. And we're all very, very different in our
1: practices. So... Right. It's, yeah, it's very multidisciplinary, right? I know I had uh, Nate Assel on about two months ago. Yeah. And he's really purely operating from a therapy side. He
0: is, he is. And um, even though he understands finances, and I think he's going to be getting his CFP soon, actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's pretty busy, but I think he's that's on the horizon for him. I don't want to speak for him. But (laughs) um, so all of us are, you know, those of us coming from the financial side are very quickly developing our therapeutic skill set, and vice versa, those on the therapy side are developing a fairly robust financial skill set, even though our practices will always feel quite different. So, you know, the experience of working with Nate would be very different from working with me.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah. And that's not surprising it, you know, when I, when I attend the FTA events, you get questions from like those therapist folks and you get questions from the financial planners. And then I think you Almost kind of fit in between there, right? I think you're like on a spectrum. You're like whatever it is, maybe like eighty percent financial planner and twenty percent therapy. Or do you think about that kind of thing? To think
0: well, of kind you? of like what I'm trying to describe myself. I sort of try to think about that. And so, if you consider, you know, like maybe one end of the spectrum being I don't know, like an actuary or something, and then, you know, the other end of the spectrum being full on you know, I don't even know what the other end would be the equivalent, but, you know, doesn't talk about numbers at all ever. Most of us are already at least 20% in, you know, and I would say even most, what I'll call like maybe a traditional financial planner is going to be a little bit in and it's getting more and more in now. I think there's a lot of recognition. Um, FB Canada has their uh, program that is uh, helping advisors develop an exquisite listening skill set. And so, it's definitely shrinking those boundaries, and then in the FTA we're even closer. There are some people who are fully in the middle, but I, I wouldn't say I'm fully in the middle. I'm still on on the financial side, but I'm I'm getting closer to
1: the middle. I'm just curious here. You mentioned the uh, FP Canada program. Um, have you looked at that seriously?
0: Um, I've taken one module of it. I haven't. I haven't investigated it in super depth, so I wouldn't be able to comment, I, it's just, it's a recognition of the trend in the industry. And I think the recognition of this is sort of the next frontier of how to really help clients in a meaningful way. And um, I think that there's a, an increased awareness of how our decision making is very emotionally based and how, you know, it is not based on logic. And in fact, you know, sometimes logic can create some resistance and people will dig in their heels and it creates the opposite effect. And we're, we're seeing that, like, like we're, we're beginning to understand why that is now.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really happy. I don't know if you looked at it or not, but the uh, body of knowledge from FB Canada was significantly revised in 2019. Yeah. And in fact, that idea of not convincing with logic, which comes straight out of, I want to say that's Brad Klontz's work originally, but that's now in there, right? So you learn that, yeah. you know, you can't hammer somebody into thinking a certain way with an Excel spreadsheet, right? Yeah. 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 Now, in your practice, then, you said you sort of, you see yourself mostly on the financial planning side, but kind of graduating to the more therapeutic side. How do you sort of present that engagement to a client? That is, do clients have to have this sort of breakdown explained? Do they come to you expecting a financial planner with, you know, robust like Excel? And and I know you're capable of doing all that stuff, but- how do you sort of explain the value you provide to a client?
0: Oh, that's a tough question. I, I'm still learning how to explain my value. My clients are way better ex- at explaining my value back to me <laughs> than I am at explaining my value. Um, and so, and, and the thing is, is that I still do robust financial planning. It's just my starting place is a little different, I think, and um, my process looks a little different, so, or it it can look a little different. So, even in the initial intake, before I even meet with them for the first time, um, I have a pre-discovery intake. So, I just sort of have a general idea of where they're coming from. And there's a little slider on it that sort of says, like, what approach would be the most helpful for you? And on one side of the slider, there is facts and numbers, and then the other slide is mindset. And so, people can slide it, you know, so they know okay, we can sort of be somewhere on this spectrum. And they're sort of letting me know what they're wanting from the relationship. So if someone says facts and numbers, then that's what they
1: get. Okay. And do you have uh, an average here? Do you know where people sit or is it all over the map?
0: Um, it, it, it has to do with how they find me. You know, so So if they found me through a certain publication, for example, that tends to attract a readership of a particular perspective that um, if you're familiar with Brad Klontz's work, they'll be very money, money vigilant. You know, they've made good, solid decisions for themselves. They do a lot of research. You know, they maybe follow this particular publication because, you know, they like to keep on top of things and, you know, educate themselves. They have a high degree of financial literacy. They may be selecting facts and figures, please. Okay. Right? And people who found me in other ways through a referral or, maybe a Google search or in a directory that's a bit more financial psychology or financial therapy specific, maybe they are leaning more toward the
1: other side. That makes sense. And of course you'd be one of the few Canadians that shows up on the FTA directory, for example, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although that is changing as well. Um, I think that more and more people are just learning about the directory and uh, adding themselves to the directory. But as far as I know, I'm currently the only Canadian on the directory. I'm not the only person in Canada who does this work. I, you know, there are other people who do this work in Canada.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that I know when Edmonton member, although I don't think he's doing any financial therapy work. So that might... Be
0: oh, I, I think I know who you're talking about. Uh, I think it's Sean.
1: Yeah. yeah. I,
0: I'm not sure how he runs his practice, but his podcast is, you know, he's had some great guests as
1: well. Yeah. I, his practice is still, uh, let's say, a traditional financial advisory or financial planning type of practice. So, And I have talked about his podcast on this before. Yeah. So with your clients then, I assume then, because you say you're really still doing financial planning engagement. So I assume you don't have many clients where they would come to you with an acute problem, or do you find that they come with an acute problem and then it sort of graduates into a long term problem? I, I'm sort of interested in this, you know, how much of the let's say people who come on that, uh, that therapy side or the like money mindset side, how much of that is about acute problem solving? Um
0: I, I would say it's about more like chronic problem solving rather than necessarily an acute problem so if someone has an acute problem like for example um, if i look at their household cash flow like i'll know right away like if they need to talk to me or if, for example they need an insolvency trustee you know or um someone recently reached out to me where what they were describing was actually that they needed a therapist you know and so i'm not a therapist on that and i know i'm not a therapist you know and, and i make that really clear and so, you know, and this person said, actually, I think you're right. Thank you.
1: In that case, did you refer a therapist or did they go off on their own and find a therapist?
0: Um, that particular person was already on the wait list for a therapist. Okay. In, in that particular case. So sometimes I do refer a therapist. Absolutely. When I think it's called for, although interestingly, many of my clients who come to see me already have a therapist in their lives because I think there's something about within the self-selection process, so that if you're open to a business like Alafia, you know, and you go through the website and you see what it's all about, you know, there is some part of that person that is already open to working with someone in that way. So it's interesting. Many of my clients are also they have their own therapists, and it's all part of their personal work and. The work we do together sort of amplifies what the therapist is doing and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I'm going to include the link to your website, the Alafia website in the show notes for today. Uh, That's a great website. I'm curious to know how much work it does for you. Is it a useful place for people to find you or is it sort of a way to explain your services to clients? What's the benefit of that website?
0: It's both. Um, It's actually a fairly new website. Um, I went through a significant brand overhaul and basically like root to leaf (laughs) overhaul. I don't know what the expression is. Um, Brand name, everything. It's not, there's nothing that is the same as it was before. And that new site, new name, everything was launched at the end of May. And it has been tremendous. So there's sort of an education piece. Um, that just kind of gets people understanding how this can work, you know, or even that such a service exists. So, you know, I try to find out how people find me, I don't even know how people find me sometimes. But, you know, I often get the comment, Oh, I didn't know that this kind of service existed. So there is an educational piece, even if they don't come to see me, they may at least now know, okay, this can be done, someone out there is doing it. There is the explanation of this is what I do. I think it represents what I do fairly well. As far as being searchable, you know, I, I have no idea. I, I'm listed in a couple of places. I think most of my traffic comes through there. It's been, um, I haven't really worked on SEO or any of that yet.
1: Now, just circling back to the working with the therapist or referring to the therapist here, this is something we talk about in class and it's sort of a difficult conversation for people who have never done it, Right. This idea that you're working with a client, they came to you expecting sort of financial planning advice, right? And now you're going to say, all right, client, I'm not the right person to help you. You have to go to a therapist. And I think the concern people have is they're, it's almost like they're kind of judging the client's mental health or some version of that. And, and I, I'm going to say, I'm going to use bad language here to say like something like the interpretation here is client you're too messed up for me to help you you got to go to this other person right and I know you but that, I think that's the impression that some people have when they uh, talk to the client about you know going to a mental health professional for example so can you talk a little bit about how that conversation goes and maybe some tips around that
0: well for me it starts with the engagement letter so the engagement letter outlines my qualifications. It also outlines very clearly, I am not a therapist. This is my training. The, the, these are the kinds of interventions I use. And if we start to approach areas where I don't have the necessary qualifications, I'm going to refer you. Because I think the important thing is for the advisor to understand is that the client's safety is the number one priority. And so practicing outside of one's scope of competence, you know, puts them at risk of harm. And so I approach it from that aspect of I, you know, it, it's not that you're messed up. It's that someone with a different skill set is going to be more qualified to help you navigate this well. You know, like like they can help you. Like so, the client's not messed up, but they could become messed up if I start working in areas where I'm not competent.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, and that's very—that's a very therapy-driven approach, right? That do no harm. That's uh, like that's one hundred percent out of the world of therapy, right? Now, you have some good case studies on your website. I'm hoping you can talk through some of the engagements you've had where you've been dealing in, let's say, that non-traditional financial planning area, and how you've uh, achieved success, or how your clients have achieved success based on that work. Is, is, do you have some case studies that are useful here?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, I, I'm just trying to think of a way that I can describe them that is, you know, confidential. So, one of the areas I work with is overspending. And so, my clients tend to have, be like high income. They may not be high net worth, but they're high income. So, one of the reasons that I would say my approach is fairly successful actually has nothing to do with me. It's because the clients are ready. When they come to see me, you know, we, we do the initial process, they sign the engagement letter, like, like, those are all signs of readiness to make change, like, they've already come to a point in their lives where they're like, ah, this isn't working anymore, I've got to make a change. So that is, you know, like, that is the first ingredient in success is their own readiness to start doing that work and make the change. And then they're hiring me because they want to work in this kind of special way. So I can't even really take credit hundred percent for you know the progress that they're making because it's really it's really their own adaptability that is facilitating you know my ability to be able to
1: support them. So then you know this is good. the spend the client who perceives that they have a spending problem and they're willing to actually fill out the form on your website or however, and engage with you on that. So now, how do you get from that? Because it's not, like, that's not an easy thing. Even that person who says, I'm ready to change. yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes into it, whether it's your work or the client's work.
0: Yeah. And so my, my um, particular practice is a very low client caseload, high intervention practice. And so I'm sort of, it's sort of designed in a way to be able to give that sort of intensive support in the early change days, which is, I think, the other main ingredient of success. So I set the expectation, again, in the engagement letter of a meeting cadence of about once a week. And that can continue for the first couple of months. Because when you're making these kinds of changes, it is no one is going to change or like, you know, like really overhaul their life if they're only seeing me once a quarter. Right? So there is, there's an accountability piece of it, but there's also a troubleshooting piece. There is also, you know, there's the exercises and then the feedback on the exercises and you know conversations around what emerges from some of the therapeutic exercises and uh, challenges that they've come up throughout the week that we then talk about and work through. So that consistent meeting cadence in the early couple of months is what sort of allows some momentum to build. And then, you know, it's pretty evident, um, you know, if it's overspending or if it's financial anxiety or, you know, if it's friction between the two, it's it's very evident in the meetings when the changes are starting to happen.
1: The kind of exercises you're talking about, is this stuff you came up with or do you have a, a package you bought from somewhere? What sort of tools do you use to help out?
0: Uh, so I use a combination of assessments and different exercises. Some of them I have found in the um, facilitating financial health, which is a classic book that everyone should have it. And so, you know, there's some like exercises that I like more than others. Most of them I've sort of developed and put my own spin on or sort of extended to, you know, I, I always I, I can't help tinkering. So <laughs> So I've sort of like adapted them in a way that, I like to use them. I've developed a few different exercises and inventories of my own. You know, the KMSI is, you know, the classic inventory that, you know, everyone is allowed to use as long as they give proper attribution. So I have a particular way that I use it. And if I can just take a quick sidebar here, yes, I do not use it to categorize people into four groups ever. Yeah. Right. Like, so that is not a thing in my practice. It is not something that I'll say, oh, you client are fitting nicely into the money avoidant box. Um, One of my um, classmates at uh, K-State described it as a choir, as voices in a choir. And I think that is such a beautiful and eloquent description of money scripts is that, you know, we all have these voices, like we all have this choir and some of those voices are going to be more dominant for some of us and also at different parts during the piece or different triggers and different things in our lives will cause certain voices to become more dominant but it's it's a choir it's not a box
1: yeah I I agree with that I've never been and I know this is not going to be popular with some of the folks listening I've never been a fan of uh whether it's that kind of thing or Colby or whatever of, of putting people into boxes. Cause I find it does vary so much Yeah, depending on, like you say, the, you know, it might be the setting you're in. That might be how your, your mood is in a particular day. There's a lot, lots of things that, that uh, change that, I, you know, and I, I, I would think that my, like my approach to parenting, for example, is different than my approach to teaching classes or, you know, yeah. and even running a business, right, when that used to be a concern for me. So I've always felt that I, I still really I did the KMSI and I have updated a couple of times. I really like it. The KMSI, sorry, it's Klons Money Scripts Inventory. And uh, yeah, I, I like it because it gives you that introspection, right? It really is. And I'm sure that people come back and tell you that just filling it out was a useful exercise.
0: It is, it is. And it's It's a great conversation starter. It is not an end point in and of itself. Um, another um, early inventory that I like to use was yanked from a paper, something to do with money grams. Um, I, I can email it to you if that's okay. And you can add it, add the paper. So I've created an inventory based on that paper. I've added a few questions to myself and I use that as a an initial intake assessment. And again, it's a
1: conversation starter. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, send that over to me and I'll figure out a way to uh, get something relevant into the show notes for today too. So
0: yeah, yeah, I like genograms. I think a lot of people who like, um, do some like trust and estate planning work, or if they're members of the uh, or if they have the FBA designation may be familiar with a version of the Junogram. So I like to use that as a tool with some additional symbols, but
1: I think back in, uh, and I think he talked about it. We had Kent on back in episode, or season one, sorry, Uh, Kent here in Edmonton, and he had just finished FEA at the time. And he talked, I'm sure he talked about genograms in that uh, discussion. I know it's a big part of uh, the FEA, the Family Enterprise Advisor, of course. A big part of this is just understanding the relationships between the different generations, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, what about situations where, and I I don't want to sort of dwell on what might not work here, but what about situations where you've dealt with somebody where you thought, I could help this person, but it, it hasn't worked out for whatever reason. Any thoughts there?
0: Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of situations that did not go great. Uh, one of them was we were making some real progress. And um, what I did not recognize is how early they still were in their financial wellness journey. So, you know, we were only a few months in, and that is very, very early in the journey to undo several decades of other mindset. And so even though they were doing tremendously well, I mean, I am talking about like the ultimate, most wonderful client a person could ever ask for, they were doing tremendously well, there was a decision made that was not in their best
1: interest. Did they buy a boat? Was that what it was?
0: Something like that. A little more expensive than a boat.
1: Okay. That's my favorite. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, so they like, they bought a yacht, like, let's call it, they bought a yacht.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: And it, I wasn't consulted prior to this decision being made and they had made it and we had a, a meeting and they didn't tell me they had made it until after the next meeting that we had. So that already tells me that there was some dissonance going on for them about the wisdom of their decision. You know, they, they did ultimately go through with that decision. You know, I took it to the FTA coffee chat to get some feedback, like, you know, how can I intervene, different things. You know, I was losing literal sleep. Like, you know, my husband was wondering, like, why I was so out of sorts, you know, like, like wh- why is my wife acting like so much? Why is she so upset? But it was it was a significant decision. And I was very stressed because of the financial planner side of me, you know, that kind of decision making sort of makes it hard for me to do my financial planning job properly.
1: And, and it almost seems like the client doesn't have trust in you then, right? It, you know, I would... Well,
0: you know, so it's, there were a few things that I needed to sort of like circle back. I needed to think about like what was going on for me, why I was being triggered by this, because like, you know, so there's that self of the therapist work that is always going on. I'm not a therapist, but I'll just use that term. Why am I being so triggered? Why am I so invested in this person's outcomes, you know, like my whole business is built on respecting client autonomy, and respecting them as the ultimate captains of their own life, and their own life process, you know, what is going on for me here, you know, so I had to do all that kind of work on myself. And we've since continued, The, the decision is made, and we're adapting to that decision. So sort of learning points for me are that, you know, these early successes aren't linear, right? Like, so the the success process is, is, you've all seen those graphs. Well, this was (laughs) exactly one of those graphs situations. And I did exactly what I said in the beginning of this podcast that doesn't work is in my desperation you know, I basically modeled, I spent hours, I don't even want to think about how many hours, building out two plans to show them decision A, right? Stay the course that we're on. Decision B, buy this yacht, right? And and, and this yacht is not the dollar number decision you're thinking it's about three times that when you consider taxes opportunity costs like like all of when you factor in all of those things it's really about three times that decision but the emotional decision for them had already been made so at that point me doing all of that was pointless and i needed to learn that painful lesson
1: based on that then i guess if you had that client to work with over again
0: Oh, I still have them.
1: So I guess that decision with that client to work with over again, and kudos to you for staying with them, by the way. I think that a lot of people would have uh, pulled the plug at that point. But uh, how would you approach that differently? I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, right? You said you, you do a lot of that self-investigation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so so how would I approach it differently? I think one of the things I might have asked them is whether they were feeling any discomfort or dissonance around their decision you know so I might have asked that I might have asked them you know what they think some of the um potential adverse outcomes would be you know so so I might have asked them you know like what they're thinking
1: yeah that, that's good that that really just figure out what's going on there and let them figure it out right that's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense
0: yeah And and also just understanding that 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 early success, those early funds that we were sort of setting aside as a buffer, their ability to perceive those funds was being impacted from the three decades prior. So um, creating a mechanism via which that they could perceive what was available and what wasn't earlier in the process. And that's where the planning comes in. And this is why it can't just be one or the other it has to be both yeah so doing that earlier in the process may have helped it may not have helped
1: right when you say it has to be both i think that there is more and more recognition of that by the the larger planning advisory community and i'm hoping that uh, you can give a little bit of advice for then the and maybe advice isn't the right word here thoughts or however you want to express it, but about what you would tell the person who's in a, like a more technical or more conventional financial planning world and how that person might integrate some of what, what you're doing into their practice.
0: Okay. Um, I think that there are a few things that um, that person should do. So the first thing is something that might be a little bit challenging to do, but it's, I think, important is to become aware of one's own money script. We all have them because the money script is just a belief, right? Like that's all it is, right? It's just a belief system and um, it just revi- resides in our head, you know, and, and we act on it as though it is truth, you know, and, and some of it is truth for us and, and that's great. And some of it leads to good results, you know? So then we assume that, you know, because it's led to good results for us, that this rule resides in everyone else's head and it does not so really the first thing that any advisor wanting to do this kind of work or even like to nudge into this kind of work is they have to do their own work they have to understand what they're bringing into the room with them you know and so that that's really step number one and there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement that like what I'm bringing into the room is not necessarily the same thing as what the client is bring in, bringing into the room. There is a whole other belief system out there possibly in, in, in this client's mind. So I think that's that's really step number one, um, is to do one's own work. Draw your own geogram, genogram, maybe do your own KMSI or money egg or, you know, for yourself so you understand your history with money and how you got to be where you are. And then after that,
1: a very simple step, right? But, yeah. <laughs> very <Yeah>.
0: easy. <laughs> uh, then after that, you can maybe, um, you know, a, a, a good place to start would maybe be to just read like Morgan Housel's Psych- psychology of money. That's a really great one. You know, it's, it's very approachable. You can use that with clients. Uh, Kelly McGonagall's uh, willpower instinct. That's another one that it's just easy to read any of Brad Clance's work, you know, any of his books. Um, I think the first couple are kind of out of print. Uh, the latest one is Money Mammoth. My favorite is Mind Over Money.
1: I haven't read Mind Over Money, but that's yeah, that's fair.
0: Yeah. Um. So so those would be places to start, you know, and then after doing all of that, you could maybe pick up a copy of Facilitating Financial Health.
1: To be fair, it's actually not a bad read. Yeah. What I find is the biggest impediment for a lot of people, it's like a $200 price tag on that book, right? Because it's a it's a textbook, right? So I find yeah. I show it to people and they're like, oh, I don't know about 200 bucks for a book, but yeah.
0: I think I got mine off eight books. So it might've been a little less. Eight books is my best friend. So, and also a very dangerous place for me to be.
1: <laughs> now that's, so you went through that becoming more aware and then getting into some reading any follow-on steps there? Anything else? Do you think that... That'll cut it. That person will start just sort of, let's say, quietly integrating that stuff into their practice.
0: They may, they may not. I mean, there there are a lot of regulations, you know, like, so not every advisor can do this. Uh, You need to learn your boundaries. And I don't mean that in a rude way. You know, we all need to understand what our boundaries. And it's interesting. um, The more you learn, the more clear those boundaries become you know, I'm biased, but I think that any advisor wanting to do this kind of work should join the FTA. We have a weekly coffee chat every Thursday, we call it therapy Thursdays. <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> so it used to be monthly, then COVID, during COVID, we bumped it up to weekly, and it was so uh, well received that we've just kept it every week. So there's always a group that hops on every week, I've actually been pretty busy lately. I haven't been able to hop on, but there are always people there. They come from a variety of disciplines. Uh, You know, we talk about practice management. We talk about, you know, client like little things that we're trying to figure out how to help people in a more elegant way. It's been incredibly valuable and really, really supportive. We have an active Facebook group that is uh, just for members where you can post stuff, um, where you can find people like when you need to give a referral, you can sort of get to know people inside the FTA. I was able to get a phenomenal referral to someone overseas, like, you know, like that I would not have been able to find elsewhere, but you know, it's just, it just expands that network. So I would suggest that, you know, we have webinars, we have the conference, you know, and then if you're wanting to go a little bit further, you know, you can take one of the programs. I know K-State and Creighton are online. I don't know about Golden Gate and I know Georgia isn't online. So K-State and Creighton would be, or Creighton might be your options to sort of get a more robust education. FTA is coming out with some experiential learning that is going to sort of bridge the gap between theory and practice. So you learn all these theories, but then do you really want to cut your teeth on your clients?
1: Yeah. And, and I have found a lot of value out of it. I attended last year's conference and really enjoyed it. The yeah. uh, two day conference last year, actually with Morgan Housel as the uh, keynote. So yeah. that was good and uh, inexpensive too. I, I have to push this because, I see a lot of other organizations where your annual dues are a thousand plus. And I think I can't remember 250 bucks a year or something like that to be an FTA member. It's very reasonable.
0: Yeah, it is. So we are straddling. So (laughs) the pricing is always trying to find the middle ground between the therapy world and the financial world. So that's the other reason why our pricing might seem little high for some people and like really reasonable to other people. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're we're trying to bridge those two worlds to the best that we can because our members are coming from both worlds.
1: I never thought about that, but a good chunk of your members would be dipping into like a nonprofit budget to pay for that. Right. That's, yeah. that's a fair point. So, yeah. All right. Um, do you have any last minute thoughts for us? Natasha, you've been great here, but any other thoughts about the intersection of, let's say, financial coaching, therapy, planning, anything we didn't get to cover?
0: Oh, golly. Um, Probably, but nothing that is coming to mind specifically right now. I'm always delighted to talk about it.
1: Okay. Yeah. but No, that's great. On that note, uh, thanks very much for joining me here today. And I'm sure that the folks watching and listening will get a ton of value out of this, just this uh, exposure to a whole new set of ideas. And and I, I think it's great that you're able to talk about even where to start if you're not sure where to start with this.
0: Wonderful. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your... CE credits and it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits they say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up so please pop over to bccquiz.online 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need including your professional responsibility credits and we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks so please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, so Natasha went over quite a bit in the interview there and she sent me a lot of follow-on. She clearly thought about this a little bit after the interview because she sent me several things that she asked if I would mention um, so much so that I actually thought about inviting her back for a follow-on session, but I think I can cover it all. So she sent me a link to uh, something called moneygrams. I- I'm not familiar with this. I was not aware of this, but just a quick survey of the paper here. It's uh, basically attaching back to childhood memories. This sounds quite useful in terms of dealing with your money story. So the kind of thing that can help to sort of inform that money story. The other money story related exercise she sent me was an article on Michael Kitz's website by uh, Megan Lertz, who's another very influential person in the Financial Therapy Association. And this is the money egg exercise. So you'll find the links to both money grams and your money story in the uh, show notes for today. And then she asked about, she said it's stigma, and that's a good way to put it, I think. I don't think I used that word, but I think it's a good way to think about it. The stigma around a financial planner referring somebody to a therapist. And what Natasha emphasizes here in her follow-on comments is that she really likes to normalize the sort of team approach to say, look, you're going to have all these folks who are focused on helping you be the best version of you. Each team member is going to have different strengths, and one of those team members might be a therapist. And this is a, a little bit of a question also of do as I do, I suppose. Natasha actually Does use a therapist herself. And I think that that's a good lesson to take away here. That if you're looking to apply these kinds of things, maybe better to use some of them yourself. The classic you know, you pull up to a Ford dealer and you want to see a bunch of Fords in the employee parking lot. Natasha also mentioned a few programs here. And actually, one included on this list is what originally got me down the path of the real value of this kind of work. And that's uh, Susan Bradley at Sudden Money Institute, the Certified Financial Transitionist Program. Susan was a speaker at Financial Planning Week, which is upcoming here mid-November. Susan was a speaker at Financial Planning Week maybe four or five years ago, and was one of uh, a long run then of uh, sort of behavior slash therapy-focused planners that uh, FP Canada brought in. I really like the work that Susan does here, and she does have this uh, Certified Financial Transitionist Program. Uh, The original one, and one that I kind of regret not having a better knowledge of, very famous in the United States. And I know a few Canadians have used it. And that's uh, George Kinder's Registered Life Planner Program. Um, This is a program that helps with the Kinder Program calls the interior part of finances. That's the stuff that's sort of internal to you. And the Kinder Program, interestingly, predates some of what we see today in terms of let's say, field research. But a lot of what's in there is that sort of practical experience that mirrors the lessons learned from research. And one, again, that I don't know is Sandra Davis's financial fitness coach certification. So lots out there, lots of interesting stuff. And a few more notes here from Natasha. She just wanted to comment a little bit on the money egg. And I think this is a good lesson overall, is that Exercises like the money egg or getting a handle on your money story, because you're delving into this area of sort of therapeutic work, you really can do some harm here if you don't have a good grounding. So I wouldn't suggest you just want to integrate this. And even she talked about in the interview, Natasha mentioned the Klon's money script inventory. And that's, it's a great tool. I like going through it. I often show financial planners it in the core curriculum. But my caution here is that just sort of integrating that kind of thing into your planning cold might scare clients off or might do things like uh, bring traumas to light. So we want to be a little bit cautious here about putting that stuff in without a little bit of background knowledge. And uh, Natasha said her sort of must read here, is the uh, Brad Klontz book, Facilitating Financial Health, which is an excellent book, well worth the price you pay for it. And Natasha also mentions, I said she had a lot to add in here, the uh, IFS, this is Internal Family Systems. And she specifically mentions a book by uh, Dick Schwartz here called Internal Family Systems. So there's uh, something there. And also mentions that the Quants Money Script Inventory, and I like this kind of thing, it's a little bit dated now in some ways. And so there's a change in language here where what used to be called money worship in KMSI is now called money focus. And the problem here, of course, is that worship, it's it's a very weighted word. It carries a lot with it. And we want to be careful about that kind of thing. We don't want to let's say, impart values on people when we're describing how they might perceive something or how they might behave, we would rather, I think, keep that fairly neutral. So that's the change from money worship. And I think I have to go changes in my textbooks too now to money focus. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. Natasha mentioned our mutual acquaintance. I hope he considers me a friend, uh, Sean Maslick. Sean is a financial planner here in Edmonton, and he hosts a podcast that I really enjoy called The Most Hated F Word. I've spoken about it here before, and I'm going to link to an episode where he interviews Moira Summers, somebody whom I have a ton of respect for. And if you listen to maybe there's three or four other episodes that I could highlight here, but there's a few where he talks specifically about helping to identify your money story. And if you sort of go back to the uh, Moira Summers episode, and uh, just to show this is all connected, Moira, actually, I got to know her sort of via Susan Bradley, um, although Moira's close by in Winnipeg and Susan is in Florida, but that's how that goes. But yeah, Sean does a great job with a a ton of um, money story stuff. So I would encourage you to delve into that if you find this interesting Sean's podcast, the one stated F word is, it's not, I would suggest sort of specifically designed for financial planners. I would describe it more as general interest, but he has a ton of stuff on there that is relevant for financial planners. I did want to comment on a couple of things because we're on this topic of behavioral finance and there's something that showed up in the news and I've seen it a couple places now, and this is around Dan Ariely's research. So Dan Ariely is well-known as a financial or a behavioral finance researcher. And he's, uh, I'm gonna say generally well-respected, although this is gonna put a little bit of a cloud over this. So there's been this kind of question, I would suggest over the last decade or so, and this is something I've heard uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's kind of the pioneer in the field talk about freely. There's just been this question about the replicability of some of the well-known studies in behavioral finance. And because Dan Ariely is one of these researchers, I think this led people to go and try and duplicate that research. And uh, notably what happened here is there's a, a question that was put before Dan by an insurer as to whether people are more or less likely to lie on an insurance application based on where questions about honesty show up in that application. And it, Turns out, and I don't know who the source of this is, I imagine it'll figure out eventually, but it it turns out that there's a well-known study that really influenced a lot of how a ton of insurers globally uh, started presenting information to their clients that was based on some data that came from an insurer, or at least here's the story, to uh, Dan Ariely's lab and then got turned into a research paper. But some folks looking at that, uh, some other researchers unrelated to Professor Ariely said, uh, you know, there's a problem with this data. And there's all kinds of things we can do here. This is actually a, a tool you see used in audit and in forensic accounting. And that's the idea that there's certain numbers that show up more frequently. If you take whatever, a million pieces of data, the number one should actually show up more frequently than any other digit. So this is often where you can pick a randomized data set versus a, uh, a sort of made-up data set. So there's concepts like that that we see applied here. And anyways, these researchers said that is a, a fake set of data. And a bunch of people who worked on that paper, including Professor Ariely himself, have said, yeah, it turns out that there is something wrong with it. And now we have this, uh, this kind of mea culpa being issued And I wanted to address this because we do use a lot of this kind of research in financial planning. And I don't think that this is a reason to back off. I think that what it should say, though, is look, we need a good number of researchers doing this research, trying to duplicate results. And we can't take just one uh, research paper by itself and say, hey, that's definitive. That describes how people behave. You even see this a little bit with how the papers themselves are written, it's very normal that we say the sort of headline is that people are going to behave a certain way. And then if you delve into the research, it's often that out of 100 people, maybe 35 people behave a certain way and the other 65 are sort of scattered across a bunch of different behaviors or maybe 55 people behave a certain way. And we say, well, most people behave that way. Well, okay, from a researcher's perspective, that's going to be true, but you have to sometimes dig in a little bit further than that. Now, I know some people recoiled when I said in the interview that I'm not a big fan of personality typing, and I specifically commented on A, and that's fine. I, I don't mean to be critical of that particular tool. I know that some people do really like that, or you might talk about DISC, or you might talk about. Uh, Myers-Briggs, whatever the personality typing is. And the challenge I have here, and this kind of ties into my comments a moment ago about Dan Ariely's research, is that we're still really in relatively early days for, let's say, lab-based psychology results. Now, what is generally accepted by those who work in, let's say, the, the science area of psychology is that there are five personality traits by which we can measure somebody. And this is really something that, again, we have to take this with a grain of salt, if they know how to apply these tools, which I don't, I would not suggest that I'm any kind of um, expert or anything close to it in this area. But I would suggest that if we're going to talk about personality typing, it's better to base it on the research that's out there rather than some of the, let's say, uh, Semi science based or sort of pseudoscience that we see floating around out there. So, the five areas we see here are neuroticism, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, and agreeableness. And these are used by psychologists. They're at least perceived to cross cultural boundaries. I even actually had a discussion once with a researcher who was working with uh, seals, if I remember right. And she was using three of these personality traits, if I remember correctly, with seals to sort of measure the personalities of seals. I don't know if that's a good research or not. I found it very interesting anyways, that the big five, those are normally called the big five personality traits. That was useful, uh, not just in human interactions, but quite a bit uh, outside of those uh, conversations as well. And um, the uh, base Uh, research for this does date back to 1949 but because you have a whole bunch of different research and sort of forks in the road happening along the way I don't know how recently this has become kind of the dominant way of thinking about this and the fact that we still have a bunch of other tools available out there it does tell me that there's still maybe a mixed bag of let's say perceptions about this type of thing. Okay, I hope that that was uh, useful. I hope that we learned something from the discussion with Natasha. I know I did. I really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like uh, Natasha is one of the folks I've spoken to here who really has been able to integrate that that whole field of um, human behavior into her financial planning practice. And I'd like you to think about whether or not that's appropriate for you. I don't think everybody needs to do that As Natasha mentions in here, uh, we do have ample opportunity for that team approach. And it might just be a matter of recognizing when something that you're dealing with is beyond your scope and saying, hey, it's time to bring in somebody like Natasha. Not that that's it. The uh, Financial Therapy Association has a whole directory of people who can help with those kinds of problems. Thank you very much. We'll see you again in two weeks and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Ryan Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Pomerleau-Piquette, uh, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.